0: And before we even go in today, I'm struck once again with how high my expectation is on days like this. And I, I pray that you guys come here with expectation that God's going to speak to you, that, that you're going to encounter him. Because once again, we do not want to just come here and hear great music and hear somebody talk. We want to come here and experience and encounter the God of the universe. We want to leave here different than when we showed up, Amen. So that's my prayer for us today, that God's Spirit would speak to us and we would be different. You know, we've been in this series about Nehemiah, and if you're new with us, you're wondering what's all the rocks about. We're talking about rubble, because Nehemiah's people and their lives were in rubble. Their cities were in rubble. And we're talking about vision, and I've said it every week, and I'm going to say it only this week and next, because we're done next week, is that vision is seeing what could be despite the present reality. It's seeing that future that could be no matter what you're currently living in. And it's been fun to see what God is doing as he is building vision here within each of us. And I'm watching as people come to me and talk and they're like, I'm in. And I see the vision ignite in their life and then they go forth and ignite other people. And I actually had lunch with a gentleman this last week. He wanted to meet and he wanted to talk and he he said, I want to talk about vision. I'm like, man, that's okay with me. I love talking about vision. He said, tell me some more. I've I've always loved our vision statement, love God, love people, but I'm being captured in a new way with what we're painting on Sunday mornings of what could be. He said, tell me more, like tell me what you see ahead for us. And so I've known this guy for a while. So I started just talking to him and telling him, um, just dreaming out loud of what I would hope that God would be doing in our midst in the future. Now I've known him for a while and he's somebody who has deep faith in God. This gentleman is also going through one of the most difficult seasons of I've, I've seen anybody go through. I mean, it, there's no area of his life that is untouched, relationally, financially, emotionally, spiritually. He's going through a dark valley. But he is, I'm amazed at how faithful he's always been. And one thing that's interesting about him is he, he knows that he, one of the, um, the ways he worships God is through his giving. And he's always been faithful, even when he hardly has any. It's been, he's, he's given even when his, his first fruits are only ones and tens. And as we sat there in that moment, he listened. He he said, Daniel, I'm so excited excited to be a part of this. I said, yeah, me too. And he said, just so you know, God gave me like a really good month. I was like, man, that's great. He said, no, like a really, really good month. I said, man, I I praise God. I'm celebrating with you. And then tears in his eyes, he smiled and he handed me a check. And he said, I'm all in. I'm all in on this. I want to see what God's going to do in us and what God's going to do through us. And whatever God calls of me, I'm in the vision. And we both had some tears and some laughs. And for him, he was excited as he um, was able to, to provide in these resources. And, and just to tell God, thank you. And for me, it was such a boon to my heart to see that God is moving in each person. That God's igniting in all of us some, some new vision of what could be. And we're all going to join in different ways and different realities And I was thankful for that man stepping forward because the the vision invites us to come forward. The vision invites us to risk, or for some of us who've been here for a while, to re-risk in this place. Vision changes things. Vision calls us to new horizons. And Vision captured Nehemiah in this book. And we saw that it called him away from his homeland, from his job, from all he knew, to go and rebuild the rubble. And he rallied the people, and they, they, they got to work building the wall. And remember, there were enemies on the outskirts who didn't think it was a good idea, who threatened to attack. But the people of Vision, captured by a picture of what could be, they left their jobs, they sacrificed their own resources, they sacrificed their own time, they, they put their lives and their livelihood in this story on the line. Because the work ahead that God was calling them to was that great. It was worth everything they had. They were pushing onward for a mission and a vision ahead, despite the reality of the current situation. Because they wanted to have a legacy to leave behind. And in chapter 5, just like in chapter 4 last week, we find that not everybody in Jerusalem was in on this. And in chapter 5, we find a group of people who are in the very city, the very kinsmen, brothers and sisters of these people, who were not on board. And we find a tension begin to form here in chapter 5. And the tension comes from disunity. And today we're looking at relational rubble. Because you see, before the vision could move forward, the relational rubble of disunity had to be cleaned up. That God would bring a people to unity before the vision would move forward. And that's where we are in chapter 5 today. If you'll read along with me on the screens. This is Nehemiah writing. Now the men and and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must have grain. And others were saying, listen, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And although we're the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are just as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery, to them. In fact, some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now, what is happening here? You see, we have these men and women who are fully committed to the vision, so much so that they're working with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. They're so captured by this that's so paramount in their lives that they are, they are um, temporary. They've left their temporary uh, responsibilities. They've left their fields. They've, they've left the things they usually do. They've put down their plows and picked up a weapon. Now, this wasn't catastrophic because in this system, there were those who had stores, storehouses of grain, which is probably why everybody was okay committing themselves to a vision while the others had the grain. So when they needed food, they went to those who had it and they bought it. But... Those selling the grain, people of their own community, saw this as an opportunity and gouged them with the price. And of course, they still had to pay their taxes to the king of Persia. And so in no time at all, the the money of the people who were working on God's project began to run out. Now there was not enough money to pay their taxes or continually buy their grain, which now the grain was the cost of gold. And if you couldn't pay it, that's okay, that's okay. They would give you store credit with some big interest. So with the money gone... They had to foreclose on their flocks and then their house and their property. When that dried up, they had to foreclose on their sons and their daughters. Now the question is, who is this group of people that's extorting the builders? We find in this text, much discussion among the sages and commentaries, that this group of people was the ones that were never actually in the vision in the first place. If you remember in chapter 1, there was a group of people that said, who would not stoop down to put their shoulders into the work. They wouldn't buy into the new vision. In Nehemiah 2 and 3, we we see those who hold back and don't work. In Nehemiah 4, last week, we see that there's those who every day came and said, it's not going to happen, they're going to attack us. This was a group who was doing just fine before Nehemiah came along. You see, there are those in life who are so comfortable just in, in their own comfort zone that when a new vision comes along that calls them out of it, they think, why bother? Man, I'm just doing fine. Why, why, why rock the boat? So when Nehemiah came along and called people to something great, ah, their life was good enough to not need great. And they saw people leaving their crops and leaving their fields, and they said, "Aha! Here's a chance to make something off this whole wall vision thing." You need some grain? (laughs) Of course, some grain. Well, it's going to cost you though. Oh, you're out of money? Well, how about we'll just I'll trade you some grain for some sheep in your house. And how about your land? Oh, you want your taxes are due? Well, I'd be happy to pay your taxes for you, but your beloved daughter will need to come be my second wife. And your son, oh, he's going to be my slave. On top of this, the interest that was added to all this was so high that the people on purpose, the people on vision could take it no longer. And they came to Nehemiah with a great outcry. Now, this happened because a group of people didn't own the vision. They had a different idea of what success looked like. It had nothing to do with their community. It had nothing to do with loving other people. It had nothing to do with the vision of God. Their idea of success had to do with their own selves. And we see this huge division begin to grow in God's people. We have those who are on vision, called by God, and sacrificing for it. And we have those who are in their comfort zones and using the people of the vision to make a gain. And now Nehemiah in chapter 5 has a huge mess on his hands. I mean, what do you do? What do you do with these these groups of people? Because regardless of all God has done to get Nehemiah there, I mean, God moved a king's heart and resourced the whole thing and he raised up on Nehemiah's leadership. Regardless that all the people jumped on board and were working hard on the wall with a a weapon in one hand, regardless of all the progress they had done to get halfway through, Regardless of all that, the vision is about to come to a screeching halt. In chapter 5, it's the most precarious we've seen it. Not because of an enemy army, not because the king withdrew his endorsement, not because of natural causes, but because some within were working toward their own purpose and their own agenda and sowing disunity in the vision. And it almost cost them everything. Now, you may have felt this in your own life. I'm sure we have. We've all felt this. Andy Stanley puts it this way. You see, vision thrives in the environment of unity. But vision dies a slow death in the environment of disunity. Division kills the vision. Division kills vision. It will always. You see, the vision can thrive when a group of people come together and give it their all. But nothing destroys a vision faster than team players pulling away in a different direction, working on their own agenda. And even the leader, the person who carries the vision, Nehemiah, he can lose commitment because of all the fires that he is constantly putting out on disunity. And so here we see him with this huge bonfire of disunity. How does he move forward? We've seen this in our own lives. Maybe you were hired hired onto a company. And you sat there in your interview, and they talked all about the, the vision and the mission and how they don't want any of their employees to burn out and how your family matters. And, and they, they even had of, of values, and they, they lined them up, and you were excited. And when you started this, for this new job, you realized that the vision of the corporate values that was on the wall was different than the values that were in the hearts of the managers that were above you. And all those nice platitudes didn't seem to work in the day-to-day operations, in fact, it seemed like there were those there who were gonna use your commitment to the vision to make their own money. And you began to feel the frustration of disunity, of people having their own agenda under a vision. And what about marriage? I mean, you get married and we both get married, we both plan to have a, a Christian home that would be centered around God in many ways. And on paper, man, it looks great. We both agree to it. But once we get into the marriage and some time passes, we find that there are competing agendas. And so now, in the house, in the marriage, there isn't alignment to what the vision would be. Or maybe you're dating somebody or have dated somebody, and you, you want a Christian relationship that honors God. And that person echoed your statement oh, yeah, me too. I want that kind of relationship. But once you got into the grind of it, it was obvious that you had two different visions for how this relationship would move forward. And they might have verbalized in the beginning oh, oh yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I'm all in. But once the A zone, once the honeymoon phase wore off and it it got down to the grind, um, they had their own agenda. And so now there's tension in this relationship. There's tension of disunity because there's two agendas. There's two visions and there's no alignment. You see, your vision for your relationship and your vision for your life can be squelched simply by disunity. Disunity. Visions do great when there's unity, but nothing will kill a vision quicker in any area of your life than disunity. It doesn't matter if it's two people in a marriage, if it's a small group, if it's a business, or if it's hundreds in a church. Unity stokes the fire for the vision, and disunity extinguishes it. Now, Nehemiah has a crisis on his hands. He's feeling the frustration that we've all felt. We've all been in this area of disunity, and that just that deep frustration that can come out from work or from the home or from whatever it would be when you feel that it's off. Where there's this, this, this frustration, this tension, it causes vision to begin to leak. It might be subtle at first, but it leaks. Reminds me when I when I was in Georgia. Um, there was a, I, I love to, to fish, and I fly fish up here, but down there we would bass fish. And um, I was part of a family that had some, a private lake in the deep south of Georgia. They have something down there called the Nat Line. You guys ever heard of the Nat Line? The Nat Line is something we don't have to worry about. But when you, cross, when you go deep enough south and it's that humid and that hot, you cross the Nat Line and the gnats are waiting for you. And once you cross it, I'm not joking. They're in your ears. They stick to your sweating, wet skin. Um, the gnat line. And I'm down there in the deep south of Georgia. And I mean, the, the banjos are always playing in the background. And this is way down there. And, and they have this private little area. And in the back is a lake that no one knew was back. It's all c- covered. It's, 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 it's off by itself. And I find this lake. And there's fish in there. Well, I get my six rods and 19 tackle boxes. And I go down there and... I find this old flat bottom metal boat on the side. Wow, this is perfect. I go out there, first cast, boom, big old largemouth. Second cast, another one. I realize these fish don't know what a lure is. They have no clue. I am just catching fish left and right. And my vision is to go out there and catch as many as I can. And guys, I'm living in the reality of the vision. I see what could be and I'm there. There's nothing better than when a vision is going forward and you're having a lot of fun, which is why I didn't really pay much attention when my feet started getting wet at first because I was just having so much fun. The vision was cranking as hard as my line. I mean, oh, my arms are tired. And at some point, I'm so into it that I look down and look back behind me, and the boat is almost half submerged. I mean, it is sinking. I'm in the middle of the lake. Now, I'm a Colorado mountain boy raised. We have canoes. But down there in the south, they had something. I looked in the back of that little dinghy, and there was something in the back bottom of that I'd never seen before. It was a perfect round hole. That it looked like something should have gone in. But there was nothing in it. I'd never seen that before. And now I'm let me just tell you something. Didn't matter how didn't matter how big my vision was for that day, my vision shrunk to the size. Get to shore. Because if I don't get to shore, I can't get all of my tackle, all my stuff with me. It's going to get bad, and it's going to be close. And I start rowing with the one paddle. Have you ever rowed a submerged boat? <laughs> I forgot to finish the story in first service. People came up to me, and I thought, oh, man, this is a good sermon. They all want to hear about Jesus. Hey, did you sink the boat? That's all they wanted to know. I got to the edge. I jumped out waist deep and pulled the submerged boat up onto the—I saved my stuff. But the point is this. You see, we can have the greatest intentions and the greatest purpose, but disunity can put the smallest hole in our plans and it might not seem that big at first because the company's cranking or the group is going or the relationship is fun because it's, it's new. But give it time. Because that little leak of disunity that, that isn't part of the vision will soon, you won't be able to avoid thinking about it. It will soon become your vision Because the disunity is the thing that submerges us. If left unchecked, the effects of disunity will become the one thing that you have to worry about. Disunity and division, division left alone can sink your vision for your relationships, for your organizations, for your groups, for this church. You see, we lose sight of what matters most if there's disunity. We lose sight of the vision for our marriage If there's division, we lose sight of the vision for our organizations and companies if there's the tension of division. We lose sight of a vision in the church if we're feeling disunity. You know how that becomes a bigger deal than what's actually happening in the organization or the church? Where there's disunity, we must do something about it. Visions die a slow death in environments of disunity. So what did Nehemiah do? The people are crying out. There is disunity. The fire is big. This whole thing could stop. He says this in verse 6. When I heard their cry and the charges, I became angry. I was very angry. He's like, I came all the way from Persia. I changed my life. I sacrificed my resources. I rallied the troops. And here we were doing great things. Things were actually cranking along. And this group of people comes and is going to ruin it all. But Nehemiah stays true to his character. Every time there's an issue... He responds. He doesn't react and lash out. And so here, he didn't stay in his anger. He says the next verse, I pondered this in my mind. He, doesn't, he does something great. He doesn't react. He pauses. He ponders. You know, pondering means that he goes home. He, he thinks it over in his heart and his mind and his prayers. He knows it's about to come to an end, and he wants to get God's heart and God's wisdom to move ahead. And that's where we start in these areas of disunity, in the, t- in the tension of our life. Don't react out of anger and don't freeze out of fear. Pause, pray. God, how would you have me move forward? So he does these things and he comes up with a plan. I pondered them in my heart and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting of the people to deal with them. Now he does something smart here. He calls together a large meeting of all the people, both the extorters and the extorted. And Nehemiah tells those who are competing against the vision something extraordinary in the following verses. And I'm gonna summarize it. He says this, listen, we were once in slavery to foreign rulers, but we've been released. We're free with a chance to have a life of our own. And now we're back in our own land. But you are putting people back in slavery. Our people are no better off off under you than they were over there. You're acting just like our enemies. And this gets their attention. And the Bible says that they stood there silently because they had nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is wrong. Do you fear or respect our God? Have you thought about what this will do to our reputation, to our enemies? We'll be a reproach to them. He lets them know that they're acting just like their foreign enemies. And he brings it full circle and says, have you ever thought how this would even look outside of our movement? We'll be a reproach, which means disapproval. We'll get disapproval, we'll get disappointment. He said we're acting just like everybody else. But the vision that God's called us to should call us to be set apart. We should look different because of what God's called us to. But we don't look different. We look the same. And this is very important Just to stop here for one second. You see, because when Jesus' followers act out in revenge or bitterness or anger or um, they're off vision with love and unity, we earn the disapproval of others. And I use that word earn on purpose. But it's bigger than that. When God's people act or speak in judgment without love, people watching us transfer that disapproval to God himself. And I've been in many meetings where I've sat with people and talked for quite a long time who've been injured by God's people or seen God's people acting in judgment. And you know what that experience has soured them on? God himself and the church that God started. One of them said, if these people who claim to be following God are acting this way, what does that say about their God? So let me, let me speak very clearly to just a certain group today, those of us who, who claim to follow Jesus. Wherever we are in disunity, wherever we gossip and speak ill of one another and don't follow God's highest law of love God, love people, we are doing damage to the reputation of God and to his church. Jesus himself is gonna, said this next verse, and this is something I think we should sit on. Jesus says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my followers. By your love for one another, everyone else will know you're my followers. Other people outside the body of God should know us for one thing, our love. Orchard Across America, how is the church known? They should know that we fight for unity, that we forgive fearlessly. And even though we're a bunch of different people from different experiences, we love one another. You see, when Jesus followers don't live in love and unity, we become a reproach. We earn the reproach of those very people we're trying to invite into our redemptive community. Why would anybody join a vision where the people inside act exactly like everybody else? You see, a church that lives in disunity within the walls, all it has to offer those outside is horizontal judgment and vertical guilt. And I'm going to be honest, I don't want to be a part of that. And I hope you don't as well, because I believe God is calling us to something greater. Now let me speak to the other group who's, you have not settled your soul on trusting Jesus and following Him. And you have probably been wounded by so-called Christians in your past, and you've you've been affected by their judgment on you or on somebody you loved. And it's affected you. It's changed the way you view God and maybe the way you, you view church. And first and foremost, I and we apologize on behalf of those people who wounded you and disappointed. We're sorry. Sorry you were treated that way. Christians are imperfect people following a perfect God. But we fail daily. And I, I know it's easy to think that there is a judgmental God because the people that follow Him are full of judgment. And we are so sorry that you were treated that way, aren't we, Orchard? But I want to ask you to know this: that while you were shown judgment from people, God was not causing that, and that God was grieved. God is grieved by the way you were treated. God is grieved by the the way that He was represented to you or your loved ones. He wants you to know that the truest representation of his character is actually his son, Jesus, who embodied all that God is. You know, Jesus had religious people throw sinners, quote-unquote, at his feet for a death penalty. And Jesus gave them love and grace. Jesus says himself that he hung out with, with sinners and partiers so much, he earned a reputation of being a sinner and a partier. Now, let me be clear, Jesus didn't sin, and Jesus was never drunk. But Jesus was around those people so much that he earned the reputation of being those people. Jesus would walk through cities, and people who were in need and far from God would try to get close to him, and the religious would get between and say, no, no, no. And Jesus Christ would rebuke the religious, and, and he would welcome the reaching. And Orchard may we not be those people between Jesus and the world, saying, no, no, you're not, you're not kind of the type that he would want. May we be the people that say, there he is. He's right here, come on. You gotta meet him. Jesus was the embodiment of who God is. And so it's so unfortunate that God's reputation and his church's reputation have been tarnished. And God forgive us, and God forgive me. And so Nehemiah, he calls the people of God to start acting like the people of God. And the group that was against the vision, That was building their own small kingdom and lining their own pockets at the expense of God's plan. They felt remorseful. It says this They said, Oh, we'll give it all back. We'll make any more demands of them. We'll do everything you say. They were convicted. God had moved in their heart and they repented. And you see, one thing Nehemiah didn't do is he didn't let the disunity keep leaking, he didn't let it keep going. He confronted it. And this is something we need to consider in our own lives. You know, if you're in a relationship or a job or a circumstance where you're feeling that frustration of tension because there's disunity, sometimes the best thing to do is to sit down with the person and talk to them. And sometimes the hardest and most frightening thing to do is to sit down and talk to them. Now remember, Nehemiah was angry at first, but he didn't go at him with that. He paused and pondered and got God's perspective. He models for us a powerful but difficult principle. Confront disunity, go to the source and have the discussion because the other option is even more damaging. You see, when I'm frustrated sometimes, when there's disunity, doesn't it feel good to talk to somebody else about it? It's called triangulation. Hey, do you know what they've done to me? You should see it like I see it. Oh, you do? That feels great. Oh, you feel like I feel? I feel much better now. We agree, they're bad, right? And I'm good? Awesome, it's great. You see, we love to do that. It does more damage. It makes us feel better, but griping to other people about our frustrations of disunity at home or work, do you know what it does? It magnifies the disunity. It certainly will never help it. So what will? Don't triangulate. Instead, ponder, pause, pray, get God's perspective, and have the courage to go talk to the person. Nehemiah shows us this pathway. And do you know what will ruin the unity in this church? quicker than anything. And do you know what will thwart our vision here in this place? If we are individuals who never buy into God's vision for our own lives and the vision here at the Orchard. You know, we've been talking about this for a month now. And I only have two more weeks, or one more week left, so don't worry. But if you as an individual get a vision for your part in this place, and you have an idea for maybe how you can have a ministry or, or however that would look, the vision is beginning to be alive in you. And here's a question. If someone were to walk up to you and say, and ask you this question, how are you personally pointing people towards a relationship with Jesus? How are you personally pointing people towards a relationship with Jesus? If you have an answer for that in your own life, you you are more in on the vision than you even know. Because people who are already saying, there he is in their own life, let me introduce you to Jesus, are on vision with God. A person on vision is also a person who's not divisive. And so have we allowed God to birth within us a personal vision? Have we asked God to birth within us a new vision that would connect us to this place? Because when we do, when we fall in love with what God's doing in our lives, when we share this common agenda, this common vision, amazing things happen. You see, when you combine unity and vision with the Spirit of God, change happens like nothing else. When I bring my, my me to the we, then I can immediately see more happening than I could ever do on my own. Now, that said, are we always gonna get along in here? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Stick around if you think we're gonna. <laughs> Am I gonna say some things that you're not gonna like? Yeah. Are you gonna say some things that people won't like? Yes. Is everyone in this room going to agree on their politics? No. Are we we all going to agree on the song volume and song choice and sermon illustrations and ministry programs and children's events and, and church stuff? No. You see, unity doesn't mean that we agree, or it doesn't mean that we don't disagree on some things. It means that we do agree on the one thing. And the one thing is Jesus, who's the head of this church. Unity means that despite our side differences, the core of our lives lives for one thing, that Jesus be glorified and people know him. Unity means that we can vote differently yet still know that we are all under the same king of kings. Our unity will be tried in the coming years. We have to remember we have a king above all. Unity means we can both like different styles of worship yet still gather in one room and worship one God in unity. Unity doesn't mean that we don't disagree. It means we agree to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's Jesus. This is a reoccurring theme in all churches. Unity is a big deal in church. Paul talks about it all the time. He writes these letters. He, he writes to Colossia, Colossians and he says this, Above all these virtues, put on love, which binds you together in perfect unity. Then he writes to Ephesians, Make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In the Corinth, listen to this, he's bringing in the big guns. I appeal to you, I, I beg you, dear brothers and sisters in the church, by the authority of Jesus Christ, not my authority, by his authority, choose to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in your church. Rather, be of one mind and be united in thought and purpose, unified and united in purpose to love God and love people. To be those people that point to Jesus. And when there's a problem, and when there is a problem, instead of gossiping or griping, in love we go to that person and discuss it. In Nehemiah's day, the people who resisted and almost ruined the movement were those who never joined in the first place. They never bought in. They never asked themselves, what can I do for the vision? They asked, what can I get out of the vision? They never asked, how can I build God's kingdom? They're so busy building their own kingdom. And this will be an issue here in this church because this is an issue in every place where there's vision. That there'll be those who feel fine with status quo and no need to buy in. One of the questions that separates where we might be, ask ourselves this God, what do you personally want to create in me to grow your kingdom? That's a dangerous question to ask. God, what, what could you personally what could you grow within me personally? to grow your kingdom. God, am I personally committed to your vision of pointing other people to you? Now it'll look 300 different ways. When we ask those questions, we are getting closer to the vision of God for our own lives. It comes down to this, that each one of us needs to personalize and individualize the vision of God in our own hearts and come to a moment where we say, I'm committed to God's call to be a person who loves God and loves people, and points them to Jesus. I'm committed. I'm in. Because when we, the people, are on board with that, when we have the Spirit of God within us, the vision of God before us, and unity around us, the gates of hell cannot stand against the power of Jesus that he's bringing. So to close, my hope is this, that we would each pray during the closing, God, birth in me a new vision Birthen me a new vision to grow your kingdom, that I would have a personal commitment. I'm praying that we're all in. Unity is important. Unity can grow, but disunity will leak vision. And so, as we close today, in a room this size, there's some disunity, there's some gossip, some griping i want to encourage you to pause and ponder and maybe there's somebody you need to go to today or this week that's forgiveness maybe give forgiveness maybe just have a discussion solve the disunity move toward that tension speak about it because it can it can kill vision and when it comes to unity we find that we are unified at the foot of the cross At the foot of the cross, we are unified. In fact, the the elements of Jesus' communion, as we take that moving forward, if you're a guest of ours, there's no class, you can take it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so as you get the symbols of his blood and body and sit down, you are holding the ultimate unifier that unifies all people of every, that look all differently to Jesus Christ. And so thank him for unity. Ask him forgiveness for we have been out of unity. And then ask him that question, that that huge question. God, will you birth within me a new vision, a personal vision? Amen? As we have communion, Micah's going to sing a song that she wrote about this. If you need prayer for anything in your life, whether it's disunity or maybe it's just a prayer of blessing, you have something big coming up or a healing, whatever you would like, we're going to have people up front. We also have an entire prayer corner back over there. We can go back and get prayer. But I would encourage you to courageously respond however God would react, however he would ask. Amen?